chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Mark 6, 45 through 56. This really is perhaps one of the most known, most referenced, most detailed, but also most debated events of the entire scriptures. For some reason, Luke does not include this particular event or the immediately following material in his gospel. But John includes it, so we're reminded this, include, this is included in Matthew, Mark, and John, along with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there are generally three reactions to this particular event of Jesus walking on water. One, there are those who accept that it is true. Two, is there are those who deny that it happened altogether. And three, is that somehow it's explained away as not so amazing as it purports to be. But let me remind you, this is God's word. We either believe it or we don't. Let's read these words about what Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It is true. It shall last forever, unlike the things of this world. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to understand it, ears to hear it. And Lord, that by your grace, we might apply these truths to our lives. And Father, anything spoken here, said here, done here, thought here by any of us, I pray if it's not consistent with your word, let it pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say, I think we have an innate desire to see or experience the impossible. After all, little boys want to fly, don't they? Whether it's the Peter Pan of yesteryear, the Superman of a few decades ago, or it's all the superheroes and all the movies after movies after movies that take place today, everybody wants to fly. Little girls want to be swept off their feet with a perfect gentleman. That's a great desire. That, too, is asking the impossible, is it not? Because there are no perfect men except one. 
We're attracted to the amazing, the powerful, and the unexpected. We want to see all kinds of miraculous things take place, not only on movie screens or in our books, but we want to see them out in the open air, and we want to experience them on the day-to-day norm. But yet, when we encounter it, what happens? We struggle to believe it. This is one of those cases that Jesus could walk on water. How is it that we could believe such a thing actually took place? The disciples saw it. It's recorded here by three of the Gospels. It's reminding us that if there are two or three witnesses, this is even enough information for a legal case to prove these facts are verifiable under Old Testament law. And yet we struggle to believe these words are true. Here we see, first of all, Jesus' priority is spiritual. Secondly, Jesus' nature is supernatural. And yet, John, regarding this matter, back in John chapter 6, at the very end, you hear these words regarding the people there who had received the miraculous feeding. It says in that section, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the reason for forcing his disciples into the boat was one reason, the state of the crowd at the time. They had messianic illustrations or illusions about Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus was the Messiah, but perhaps not the Messiah they expected. Jesus wasn't there to be an earthly geopolitical king ready to take back Israel from the Roman Empire. He was the king of the kingdom of God, ready to rule over all the earth as the king that God has provided to his people through all history for his kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. So much so that when he was confronted by Pilate, and Pilate said, they say you are a king, Jesus said, that is true, but my kingdom is not of this world. And, of course, the state of the crowd was this, but also the disposition of the disciples. The disciples could easily have gotten all caught up in all of that, couldn't they? In fact, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he had spent 40 days with them, teaching them before he ascended into heaven, one of the first questions or last questions they ask him before he goes up is this, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they too didn't get it. One of them, in fact, was even a zealot. He was willing at one time before coming to Christ to to commit acts of terrorism in order to restore the kingdom to Israel. So his priority here is not the geopolitical kingdom of Israel. It is the spiritual kingdom of God for the spiritual Israel, all those who have the faith of Abraham. And so he gets them into the boat, he dismisses them, the crowd, and then he goes to do what? To pray. His desire is to pray. Now why is this? Well, of course, this is the practice of Jesus. This also reminds us of the stress of the situation. We looked last week at how Jesus was Uh, hearing the report of the returning disciples who had gone out and ministered in his name and they were seeking a time of rest. Instead of getting the rest, they got 5,000 people coming to hear him teach for hours on end. 
And Jesus himself repeatedly, because of the stress and all the things that are going on, sought for times to pray. Now, one question we might ask is this, and perhaps Jesus responding to the avenue of escape or to which he might flee to conquer the temptation of the crowds. We forget Jesus was a man just like us and was tempted in every way just as we are. How tempting it could have been to say, yes, I'll be your king. In fact, this was one of the great temptations of Satan in the wilderness during the 40 days before Jesus entered into his ministry was this temptation to be a ruler of the people now. Satan said, if you just bow down before me, I'll give you power to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. How do we conquer temptation but to pray and to ask God to help us? But it's also this, to find strength in his Father. You see, when we pray, we recognize who we are praying to. And if you know the words of Jesus' prayers throughout the New Testament, you know that how often he ascribes to the words of God, my Father. And he teaches us to say the same. Our Father who art in heaven is that famous statement that begins the Lord's Prayer. The desire to pray is because it is a spiritual emphasis and priority in the life of Jesus. It is to avoid the temptation to just focus on the things of the day. And of course, what was he having to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? the people who needed to be taught, the sheep who needed to be fed, those who were coming to him with their problems of sin and temptation, their problems of healing and disease and all those things, all of this together coming upon him in the day-to-day, -day, and this is our lives, isn't it? In the day-to-day, -day, what are we thinking of? We're often thinking of all the stressors of the day, the car that doesn't turn on when you want it to, uh, the, uh, the situation at work that you've struggled with over that past week. In school, the grades you want to get and the teachers you don't get along with. In, in, at home, the, the parents and the children that collide against each other because the children sin in disobeying their parents and because the parents sin in the way that they treat their children. And so here's the need at times for solitude. But not solitude to be alone. Solitude to be with the Father. You see, stress, temptation, and the like can be overwhelming. I think all of us at times will find ourselves in these situations. There are times I find myself this way. You might note that there are times if you're here, if you were to watch our security cameras, sometimes you'll find during the day that I'll be pacing around in here, pacing down the hallways, or going out the door and walking towards the beach. It's because there are times when because of our temptations or because of stress or because of things that are overwhelming, we need to be alone. But it's not alone for the sake of being alone. It's not alone because I can save myself. It's not alone because my thoughts are so important that I can conquer any situation is to be with the Lord. You see, the promise is this. God will provide an escape from temptation to which we should flee. Sometimes that solitude, sometimes that means we leave the room. Sometimes that means we leave the crowd and we go to the Father in prayer and ask him to help us. But sometimes, too, it means 
we go to the crowd of believers for strength and encouragement and accountability. For Christ, as the perfect Son of God, he could go to the Father and pray and find strength to face the day and its stress. For us, we can do that too, but sometimes as well, God provides for us other believers to help us in these matters. Our priority must always be to seek Christ, to seek God first and his kingdom and his righteousness. And to do that, we must be reminded there are times when we escape from the kingdoms and the things of this world and go to the Lord himself in prayer. Jesus' priority was spiritual, but Jesus' nature is supernatural. People ask you, do you believe in the supernatural? And you ask, answer the question, no. Let me tell you, you either don't understand what it is to be a Christian or you are not a Christian. Because we believe in the supernatural. This is a supernatural event. How many of you can walk without any aid or anything on water across a sea? I don't see anybody raising their hand. It is not natural. If we understand all the laws of physics and science, we understand that we can't walk on water. We can't do it. And yet the scriptures tell us this is exactly what Jesus did. First of all, let's look at the situation described here in this event. Verse 48 says, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. We need to stop here because there's something going on. This compassion that Jesus has on his disciples as they're struggling to cross this lake. If you look at the account in John, John reminds us how far they are from the shore. He says that they have struggled to go three or four miles from the shore. Now I'm wearing glasses. I can't read a thing. I don't care how big the print is, I can't read a thing close up without my glasses. But I have pretty good uh, vision from a distance. I can really probably go without glasses to see things at a distance. But I can't see things three miles away. Especially if I were to go over here, even if there was a big cliff over here on the side of the ocean, if I was on the west coast instead of the east coast, and I look out there, I'm not going to see things three or four miles away. So was it that Jesus had supernatural vision at that moment and saw that they were struggling? Or was it he, that he had some supernatural gift in order to perceive what was going out on that lake? It doesn't matter what that is. But his compassion here is a result of his supernatural nature of knowing, being omniscient at least, of the circumstances of his disciples. He sees them struggling to make headway against the waves. Even that he knows what's going on is a supernatural act. You might ask, why is it that he wanted to pass by them? I don't have all the answers to those questions. It says he meant to pass by them. We know that God often passes by people. He passed by Moses in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. He passed by Moses and Moses was able to see his back and see his glory. And the Lord passing by explained what his character was like and being merciful and compassionate. 
And then he passed by, in a sense, Elijah, when Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 19 was in a cave and an earthquake comes, wind comes, powerful things come, a fire comes, and Jesus, or uh, Elijah here, hears a whisper. And it seems to be as if the Father is passing by. Elijah covers himself up, bows down, and recognizes God in the whisper. But here is Jesus ready to pass by his people. And all three Gospels use this phrase in the midst of his crying out to them as they cry to him, thinking they've seen a ghost. In fact, the word phantom or phantasm is the only descriptor in all of the New Testament. Is here and in Matthew about this idea of a ghost. This is a, a, evidently their superstitious nature coming out. They can't possibly believe that this is a real person that's coming out. They don't recognize who Jesus is. They're terrified. And he says to them, Take heart, I am. That phrase, I am, is the exact same phrase used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to remind us of the name of God, I am. When Jesus says this, not only here, but also in the book of John, in other contexts, we are reminded that this is in a sense, exactly how God the Father reacts in the Old Testament to his people. He continuously cries out to them, I am, as his name. And he also tells them, do not be afraid. In other words, this is yet another instance in scripture of claiming that Jesus is divine. The absolute terror of the disciples here not only illustrates to them the impossibility of a human being coming out to them walking on the water in a windstorm, but it also reminds us that they're seeing somebody who is more than mere man. And then there is encouragement here, isn't there? Do not be afraid. But not only this, we also see from Matthew's account that there's also an invitation. Peter, looking over the side of the boat, says, if it really is you, command me to come out of the boat. And Jesus says one word, come. So now Peter, in a supernatural act, strengthened by the Savior, gets out and he's the second person in history to walk on water. But it's only by the power of the Lord, because when he realizes what he's doing and tries to do it under his own power, he begins to sink. You see, this claim of divinity here is a reminder that this is something that we cannot do apart from the power of God. God made all things. He created all things. His creation is, as we like to say, under laws of nature, or that is scientific uh, things like gravity, and uh, the, the, the weight of people in water and all those things that take place, whether or not you sink or float and all those different things. But we know that we cannot walk on water, but here is somebody who is outside of the bounds of creative, the, the laws of creation because he was involved in creation. He is the divine son of God. 
And this leads to utter amazement, doesn't it? Here are the disciples. He gets into the boat, the storm stops, the wind ceases. It says they're utterly astounded or amazed. In fact, the words here described for us, this is not a one and done type thing. The word usage here, the, the, the verb tense reminds us this is a thing that happens and continues. It is they continue to be amazed. I think that really describes the life of the disciples, doesn't it? As they see Jesus and they hear his teaching and they see his miracles and they see events like this and they wonder and, and, and awe is felt by them again and again. They continue to be amazed or astounded at what is taking place. Matthew tells us one other thing. He tells us that they worshiped him. And they said, truly, this is the son of God. You see, this is a claim of the divinity of Jesus. And they recognize this. And Jesus does not even, as Peter and John will do later, as Paul will do on the mission field, they say, don't worship us, we're mere men like you. But Jesus allowed them to worship him. Recent events around the world have reminded us of the claims of Islam. You know because of the events that are taking place in the Middle East right now and the Gaza Strip and Israel and all those places and in all the countries around them, Jordan and Egypt, who in particular do not even want uh, the uh, Palestinians to be in their borders because of the threat of upending their own country's stability. And they recognize those who are in the Islamic tradition they will tell you they recognize Abraham, Moses, and even Jesus as prophets. In fact, they will tell you at times that they are a peaceful religion, although that certainly is not in their documents or the descriptions. We cannot have both. Either he is or he isn't. This is the fact that is proclaimed here in this particular event particularly is that Jesus' claim is that he is the divine son of God, the great I am of the scriptures, and the one who not only has the power over nature itself, but is worthy to be worshipped. Are we ready and willing to worship Jesus Christ? Well, this is the teaching of these particular things. Now, let, let's see what our reaction would be. We see what the disciples' reaction is. Perhaps we can place ourselves in their shoes. Sometimes we want to place ourselves in their shoes and try to say we would be better than they would be. I don't think that's true. But here, let's look at what they did. First of all, a reminder, why were they in that boat to begin with, rowing across the shore, struggling to get across because of the wind that was taking place. The idea here is that they were out there perhaps for a few hours trying to get across the sea. Well, I have to say, when things are hard, what do we do? We complain or we doubt the providence or grace of God. Notice here, this was in the midst of their obeying Jesus. He told them to go out there on, their, on the lake. And sometimes we get the impression if God tells us to do something and we're obedient to him, then things are going to go well, right? 
But here they obeyed him. They did exactly what he said to do. They're out there on the lake, and they're struggling, physically struggling for hours. And by this point, when Jesus comes across, assumedly, it's like the last sea, a storm that they've encountered, is they're afraid of what's happening. Even if we are obeying Jesus' commands, even if we are doing what he asks us to do, sometimes circumstances will be difficult. And of course here, because of those circumstances, they fail to recognize the Lord. And we do the same thing, don't we? In all the circumstances in which we, we think we're doing the right thing, we're obeying God's word, we, we can't find a reason for the situation we find ourselves in, our temptation is to blame God or to say, this proves there is no God. In fact, that happened just these last couple weeks. Perhaps you've heard about it. This wasn't a Christian. This was a young lady who was a soccer player. Perhaps one of the most known soccer players on the face of the planet because of the controversies entangled within her on the American soccer team. She began to play her last soccer game before retirement, probably thinking that this means I will have my accolades, my career will be over, my accomplishments will be shown, and just a few minutes into the game she got injured. But you know what she said? This proves there is no God. The mere fact that she was injured on a soccer field in her last game when she was ready to retire, in her mind, proved there was no God. And I think, first of all, who asked you whether or not God was real? Because you don't believe in him. But on the other hand, I think we look at someone like that and we say, oh, look how horrible a person that is. But before we condemn her, let's make sure we don't have the same attitude. Have you ever been obedience, in obedience to God, doing the right things, and things weren't working out the way you expected or wanted them to work out, or perhaps things got difficult, and you got yourselves in all kinds of difficult situations merely because you were obeying God's word, and you thought, where is God in all this? That's the same attitude. Only in some ways it's even worse. Because we claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That woman doesn't. So here it is, if we're in the midst of a hard circumstance trying to do what God wants us to do and things don't go our way and we say to the Lord, I don't even know if you're there because I'm not getting what I want, then we will fail to recognize the Lord even when he comes. You see, we often misunderstand the signs. Here's what it says, verse 51, he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, they were utterly astounded. But then here's this, the reason why they were so astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. On an intellectual level, they didn't understand. What didn't they understand? You know, what was there to understand? You know, they're just eating a dinner. We had a fellowship dinner here last Sunday to celebrate Thanksgiving. You know, it, what was there to understand? There was plenty for everybody to eat. Well, of course, the sign was this. The sign was that there wasn't plenty to eat. God made it plenty to eat through the divine Son of God who had the power to multiply the loaves and the fish. And so it was revealing to them 
the character and nature of Jesus, that he was the divine son of God. But because they did not intellectually understand that, they weren't ready for him to cross the lake. So they misunderstood the sign, but not only that, it was also on a spiritual level. Here's what it says, their hearts were hardened. In fact, the word here in Greek is that they were petrified. Now, I've joked with people that when we lived out in South Dakota, there evidently was a lot of petrified wood out on the ranches around that particular town that we lived in. And at one point in the history of that town, that guy collected all these uh, portions of petrified wood and he brought it into town into a park and he cemented it together into these little pillars so that now you can go visit Lemon, South Dakota in a tourist trap that's there, the petrified wood park. But the point of this is this petrified wood is wood that is just like stone. It is hard. You wouldn't just be able to distinguish it in most cases between, you know, you would think it was a rock and not wood that had been hardened. Now, it could also tell you how it demonstrates that there really was a universal flood in that area of the world that is semi-arid. Got little, very little rain in that part of South Dakota. But, but the point here is this. The hearts here of the disciples were petrified. In other words, they were deadened to the reality of who Jesus was. It had to be revealed to them in supernatural ways the, the nature of Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, even when Peter will make the great confession in the book of Matthew that truly you are the Son of God, Jesus will say to him, this wasn't revealed to you by yourself. It was revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. You see, on a spiritual level, their hearts were petrified. And this happens to us sometimes too. We fail to see that there really is someone, Jesus Christ, who not only loves his people but can do amazing and powerful things. And just the fact that we're in the family of God took a supernatural act to take our petrified hearts and cause us to be born again to a living hope. And so what, what often happens, first of all, we doubt and we complain when things are hard. We, we sometimes misunderstand the signs that, that are not only in Scripture, but sometimes the life events around us, that God is still at work in changing our hearts and lives and our attitudes and helping us deal with sin. But we also focus on the benefits rather than the person. Here's this last little section. They get to their destination in Gennesaret. When they get out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they thought he was or they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe or tassel of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Can you imagine the chaos of this? I can't imagine. You know, for, for me, it, it's hard to understand waiting for hours in a waiting room at the hospital. But most of us don't want to go to the hospital. These are people that want to go to Jesus because they've heard of his exploits, and they're flocking to him in chaos and turmoil. Why? Because they recognize that he is the divine son of God, and they want to worship him? No. 
They want their life to be made simpler. They want to be healed from their diseases. They want to receive the benefits of those things. And, and here is what we are as natural human beings. We want all the benefits without all the submission and humility we must have before the God of glory. We focus on the benefits and not the person. Our feeble, failed responses. But make no mistake about it. This passage teaches that the follower of Jesus, first of all, believes in the supernatural. Think about that. All the miracles, all the movies, all the, all the, the trivia out there that, that likes to say, let's just put you in a world of imagination where miracles can happen. We don't need a world of imagination. We have the reality of Jesus, the miracle maker. We believe in the supernatural, but we also believe in the divinity of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. What an important verse. It's in Jesus Christ that the world comes to be saved from their sins. And why? It's because we believe God's word to be true. Even the parts that are difficult to digest, even if we find it difficult to believe that Jesus really did walk on water, we understand that this book is different than the other books around us. This story is different than the stories we're going to hear from oral tradition. 